Well, it is great to welcome you. Um, my name is John T. We're going to turn to God's Word. So I'd love you to uh, find a Bible and turn to John chapter 1. Um, hopefully you were given one as you came in or find it on your phone. John chapter 1. It's on page 1063 of the Church Bibles. And we started our journey through John's Gospel last week. And we were saying last week that, that as we read this Gospel, we should be praying... Show us your glory. That we should be asking God that he would show us more of who he is and what he's done and what he's like. So as we move on now through to the next chunk, let's be asking God to show us his glory. We're going to read from verse 19 through to 34. I'd love you to follow this as I read, and then we're going to explore it um, together. So John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who'd been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you, stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. One of the things that's interesting um, is this use of the word testimony. This is John's testimony. And testimony is really important to us. Even in silly little ways. If you're trying to decide what film you want to go and watch at the cinema, you might listen to a film review, you know, Mark Kermode and um, Simon Mayer, and you listen to what they say about the films, and they, what happens is they've seen it on your behalf so that you don't have to waste two hours of your life. That's generous, right? That's good. And so they tell you, they testify and say, that film is rubbish, don't go and see it. Or they say, that film is brilliant, go and see it. Or perhaps you're buying something on Amazon 
it's very difficult. You know, if you're buying something, you, you see a little picture of it. It's difficult to know if it's any good, isn't it? So what do you look? You want to look at the, you want to look at the reviews. You want to see how many stars the reviews have given it. You don't want to buy a kind of one-star potato peeler. It's like, oh, no use. And so we're used to the idea of testimony. Now, I'm going to argue today that it's no different when it comes to God. How do you know what to believe? How do you decide what's true and what isn't? Because let's face it, we can't see God, we can't feel him, we can't experiment on him. How do you know what's true? But what we need is testimony. We need someone who will testify to us so that we can know what's true. And that is what John's gospel is rammed full of. Over and over again in the pages of this book, John's gospel, he is going to say, here is testimony, here is testimony. And it's given so that we can know and believe everything that he says about Jesus and know it's true. He's going to load up the witnesses. So when we get on through this gospel, when we get to chapter 5, he's going to call the Old Testament. And say the Old Testament testifies to the truth of Jesus. Then he's going to call on God the Father who testifies to Jesus and God the Holy Spirit who testifies to Jesus. He's going to show us seven great signs that testify to Jesus. And all of it, again and again in John's Gospel, it's here's the testimony so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what this book is for. And what we have today is John, this gets confusing, John the gospel writer calling his first witness. And his first witness is a man called John. Ah, different John. This is John the Baptist. And so John the, ba- John the gospel writer calls his first witness and says, the first person I want to tell you about is John the Baptist. Let's listen to his testimony. See, that's how it starts, verse 19, what we just read. This was John's testimony. So when we think of knowing God, or when we think of glimpsing his glory, it doesn't rest on some emotional experience. We're not talking about something, oh, I want to have some mystical experience of God, and then I'll glimpse his glory. No, when we talk about glimpsing God's glory, when we talk about seeing him and knowing him, what it rests on is testimony. On stuff that people have seen and written down for us so that we can know. The trouble is we often want something more direct and personal. I want God to just do it to me. Give it to me. I don't want to read a book. I want it here. Tough. God's given you a book. He's given you a book so that you can know him. And for us to turn around and go, well, I don't want a book. Tough. It's what he's given you. And that's why we want to experience and know God through this testimony. Now, don't hear me wrongly. That is a deeply emotional experience. I'm not saying it's unemotional. I'm not saying it's not an experience. But I'm saying it rests on a testimony. And that's good news because my feelings go up and down like a roller coaster. 
here is something rock solid that we can build our lives on. So this afternoon, I want to invite you to examine the testimony, and it starts with John the Baptist. And it's this testimony we're thinking about. Now, let's think about John the Baptist. He's not very interested in talking about himself. Did you notice that? Now, look, we need to understand that at this time, John the Baptist is causing quite a stir, right? He's rocked up in the wilderness. He's a slightly odd bloke. He eats locusts and honey, dresses in camel's hair. You're not your average guy, except in London, maybe. So there he is, and he's preaching in the wilderness. And he's having quite an impact. Right? Crowds of people are coming to him. He is trending, right? He is popular. He's going viral. People are coming from everywhere. And he's baptizing people in the river. That's not a normal thing to be happening. And it's happening in this desert area. And back in Jerusalem, which is kind of the capital where all the religious bods are, they hear about what's happening and they go, we should go check this guy out. What is this? So they send their delegation to check out what this man is saying. So here they come from Jerusalem with their clipboards. Hello, John. I've got a few questions for you. I need to ask you a few questions. I don't think they're particularly hostile. I think they're trying to work out what's going on. And their key question is, who are you? Who are you? Are you the Messiah? I'm not. Who are you then? Are you Elijah? So the Jews, um, in the Old Testament, it says that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come. So are you him? Nope. Are you the prophet? So way, way back, Moses said that there was going to be this one who comes who would be the prophet. Are you him? Nope. This is quite an awkward conversation. You could try this after, after, if you want to have an awkward conversation. You could try this. Who are you? Nope. What's your name? Nope. You, could, you know, are you a student? Nope. Do you work locally? Nope. Give me something! You can imagine this conversation being slightly awkward. And you get the exasperation in verse 22. Look, we've been sent by the bods in Jerusalem. We've got to tell them something. What do you say about yourself? Well, that's the point. John doesn't say much about himself at all. He has a, he has a testimony to give, not a reputation to build. He draws attention to another, not to himself. He is not the center of attention. He wants to stand on the sidelines and point somewhere else. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that quite impressive about John the Baptist. To deliberately take yourself out of the limelight in order to point to someone else. I am not. That's a tough thing to say, isn't it? I'm not. Now today, I think if John was saying this sort of stuff, we might say to him, oh, John, are you struggling with self-esteem? Do you need, you know, why you have, why you down on yourself? Tell us about yourself. Now, John isn't struggling with self-esteem. John is not some useless, worthless bloke. In fact, get this right. When Jesus was asked later on about John, do you know how Jesus described John the Baptist? He said this, Matthew 11. Among those born of women, there has never been anyone greater than John the Baptist. 
That's quite a commendation. Right? Jesus, eternal son of God, says he's the greatest of all. And yet John says, no, don't, don't talk about me. It's not about me. How does John do this? How can John be so disinterested in personal gain? Are you the Messiah? Well, maybe, maybe, you know. I, I do have quite a few credentials. Look at my big crowd that I'm preaching to. Isn't it glorious? No, John is disinterested. Why? It is because he is absolutely captivated by the glory of the one who's coming. It's as if he, right, it's as if he says to these guys, he says, look, if, oh, if only you knew what was about to come. If only you knew what was about to happen, you would have no interest in me at all. Stop talking about me. Let's talk about him. John will not let them put him on a pedestal. He will not talk about his own achievements and gifts. He will not play to the crowds. He will not let them do it. And we need to learn that lesson. I am not the Messiah. Those are words that some of us in this room really need to learn to say. I am not the Messiah. We should practice, actually. Why don't we have a practice of saying that? It's very liberating. Okay? At first, it's quite unnerving. But once you get used to it, I've been doing this all week. (laughs) I've been walking down the street going, I am not the Messiah. In case anyone was confused, not me. After three, we'll say it together. You don't have to say it loud. You just build up. You can practice later. One, two, three. I am not the Messiah. Doesn't that feel good? You see, here's the thing, right? We live in a world that is trying to create within us a Messiah complex. That is trying to constantly say, no, you are the Messiah. You are the one. You are the one who can fix all the problems. You should talk about yourself. Sell yourself. That ridiculous apprentice program is about to start again. How do they keep finding people? So apprentice, the Alan Sugar's thing is about to start again where you just get all these people who all they want to talk about is themselves. You ever been in a conversation with somebody who just wants to talk about themselves? Perhaps sometimes we're guilty of that. We love to talk about ourselves. We love to tell people how great we are. We love to tell people about all our achievements and all the wonderful things we've done. And then along comes John and he says, I am not. I'm not the Messiah. But our culture says you are. And for, it is crushing. And here is the true liberty. Here is the true freedom. For, to learn what you are not is so re- reassuring. And it's not just that you're not the Messiah. No one else is the Messiah either that we tend to put on a pedestal and say, oh, well, I really like them. We put people up. We have our, you know, within church, we have our favorite Christian celebrities and, and pastors who preach on the internet. Do you know, the internet has created a huge insecurity problem among pastors. Because now, we listen to people preach on the internet, we go, oh, I'm not as good as them. And everybody's listening to the great preachers, and we have to stand up and go, well, here's something. Do you know what? 
We, we idolize people. We make much of people. We keep talking about people. We keep, and it's not about them. Globe Church is not about me. Please, God, don't let it be about me. As I was writing this sermon, I had to stop, get on my knees and pray and confess and say, God, I see this in me. I want people to think I'm great. I want people to think I'm the Messiah. We are a flat hierarchy. I like that. In fact, we should be like less than that. I don't even, we should just be flat. And then you've got Jesus. That's it. Jesus and flat. That's what, that should be our new slogan. <laughs> come to globe. <laughs> come to globe. Jesus and flat. That's it. That's all you get. Because it's him. And John the Baptist keeps saying, it's not me, it's him. And the only way that we can get a perspective on this is to catch a glimpse of the utter worth of Jesus. It's not about us going around saying, oh, I'm really, really rubbish. I'm really, really rubbish. No, it's about us going around. John isn't saying he's rubbish. He's just saying that compared to Jesus, he's nothing. And for us to catch a glimpse of the sheer beauty of Jesus, that's what John is passionate about. Let's not talk about me, let's talk about him. So let's talk about him. Let me show you two things that John tells us about Jesus. Firstly, John testifies that Jesus is the Lord. So when John gets really pushed, in verse 23, here's the closest he gets to an answer. Look what he says. John replied in the words of Isaiah, I'm a voice. If you're going to push me, who am I? I'm a voice. I'm the, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. You see, John the Baptist quotes from a prophet called Isaiah who wrote hundreds of years earlier. And he says, you know what? If, if you really want to know who I am, that's sort of what I am. I'm that voice. And if we can get a glimpse of why he picks this prophecy from Isaiah, it will help us to see why John the Baptist says, not me, not me, not me, him. Because John the Baptist understands this prophecy and it blows his mind and he says, you have no idea. If you're interested in me, you have no idea what you're talking about. So let me take you back to Isaiah's day. And back in his day, God's people Israel had been rebellious. And God had told his rebellious people that they were going to be taken from their land and they were going to be carried off into exile in Babylon. It was devastating news, terrifying for them. All that they knew, all of their security, all that they loved, all that was familiar, all that was home was going to be lost and they were going to be taken away to exile. Do you understand that? God said to his people they were going to lose everything. That's Isaiah chapter 39. And then Isaiah 40 says, comfort, comfort my people and speak tenderly to Jerusalem. So God says, yes, I am going to punish my rebellious people. But then it's as if his heart overflows and he says, but comfort. And how is God going to comfort his people? Well, look, this is how he's going to comfort his people. Let's have the words of Isaiah up on the screen. A voice, that, that doesn't do it, that was, 
just that James is good at his job. Too late. <laughs> Let's have Isaiah. Um, so comfort, comfort my people. People have been told they're going into exile. Here it is. God is going to comfort his people this way. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. (laughs) Right, get that, okay? How is God going to comfort his rebellious people? You're going to go into exile, you're going to be punished. How is he going to comfort them? He says, I'm coming in person. Make a road, I'm on my way. And before I come, there's going to be a voice that cries out to prepare the way for me to come. Do you see it? God is going to come. And why is God going to come? He's going to come so that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So that all people will see God's glory. John the Baptist, so that's what Isaiah said, all the way back here. And he's looking forward to this moment when God would come, reveal his glory, and bring comfort to his people. John the Baptist is standing here and he says, I'm the voice. John the Baptist says, I'm the voice. Which means that what is about to happen next is that God comes. Do you not see? That's what John the Baptist thinks is going to happen. That's his testimony. God is coming to reveal his glory. And that's why we saw last week at the start of John's gospel, John says, the gospel writer, we've seen his glory. We have seen his glory. And so John the Baptist is standing there and he says, that's where we are. We're on the cusp of that moment of history. And have a look at verse 26. They still want to know why he baptizes. They're still saying, why do you baptize with water? Why, you know, why are you doing that? In verse 26, he says, Look, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know. Oh, look. Do you not feel the electricity in that sentence? John looks out on the crowd, and he says, among you right now, is standing one that you do not know. He's here. God is here among you right now. Can, can, can you not feel that? Can you not see why John said, forget me? It's not about me. God is standing in this crowd. Why are you asking about me? And here is the secret to learning how we forget ourselves and how we stop obsessing about ourselves. Here is the secret when we understand that God has come. And John the Baptist's view of this one who's coming, verse 27, is that he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John says, this one who's coming, I can't even untie his sandals. 
you know, that is the lowest of the low job. That is what slaves did. You take the filthy sandals off the filthy feet. And John says, I'm not worthy even to do that. Remember, John is the greatest of all born of women. And he says, I'm not worthy to take his shoes off. I don't know how to help you to feel the worth that John sees in this one. He is so worthy. John is so captivated by his worth that John says, I'm just just a voice. And so serving this one becomes the highest honor, the greatest joy, the deepest privilege, not a duty, but a joy. You sense it with John, who am I? Who am I that I get to be the voice who introduces this one? Jesus is the Lord, God, come in person to reveal his glory. Now, of course, as soon as we forget that, who Jesus, that Jesus is the Lord, as soon as we forget that he's glorious, we get obsessed about our own greatness. We get obsessed about doing things that make us look great. We want the important jobs. We want to serve in ways that make us look good. We want to be impressive. We want people to say, wow, aren't they great? We want everyone to know our names. But what John has realized is that greatness is not found in the act that you do, but in the greatness of the one you do it for. Do you get that? To take the filthy shoes off the most worthy person is infinitely glorious. And therefore, if we have the privilege of serving this Lord, it is not about the impressive things that we get to do. It is about the greatness of the one we do it for. So whether you are packing stuff into a car or tearing down... Wow, that was good. We're going to tear down at the end. Did you notice that? That's a whole new concept um, as we pack away. doesn't matter. We're going to... Um, it's fine, Kimberly. It was terrific. Loved it. Much more energy than our kind of set down. Tear down. Yes. Whether we're doing that or whether we're leading a focused Bible study or whether we're making a meal for someone, whether we're talking and having a coffee or sending a text, the greatness is not in the thing we're doing but that we're serving the Lord of glory. I am not the Messiah. He is. And when we understand that Jesus is Lord, it transforms everything. But there's a second, we could dwell here for ages, but there's a second part to John's testimony, and we've got to get to this. He is the Lord, but Jesus is the Lord who is the Lamb. So John the Baptist says, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then in verse 29, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lord, but he's also the Lamb. That's what John testifies to. He's really clear in verse 30. This is the one I meant. It's him, this one. But why call him the Lamb? What an odd thing to say. Why not say, look, the Lord of glory. 
Why say the lamb? That's just weird. Because he's not a lamb, he's a man. What do you think of when you hear the word lamb? Once you get past roast dinner, what do you think after that? We think fluffy, cute, sweet, innocent, Sean the sheep. Mary had a little lamb, didn't she? The fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the, the, whatever it was, the lamb was sure to go. See, that's what lambs are like. They're nice and they follow you around. And so we might miss this and go, well, why is John pointing at Jesus and going, look, a cute, fluffy little sheep? In the Bible, there was a very different understanding of a lamb. To be a lamb meant you were going to die. Simple as. A lamb was not a cute and fluffy pet. To be a lamb meant you were going to die as a sacrifice. So the second verse of Mary had a little lamb. Do you know the second verse? Mary had a little lamb. Her father shot it dead. The next day it went to school between two hunks of bread. Um, that's... <laughs> Don't be offended. Do you not know the third verse? Mary had that lamb. She tied it to a pylon. A thousand bolts went up its tail and turned its wool to nylon. Do we know? I could do this forever. <laughs> Let's stop. Look, lamb. Sorry, that was a complete aside. Lamb. In the Bible, lamb means die. The lamb is going to die. And in particular, and Stephen helped us think about this at the start, in particular that was associated with this festival called the Passover. When God rescued his people, God's people were slaves in Egypt, and God said he was going to sweep through the land. And in every single house, the eldest son would die. That might shock you. Does that shock you, that God would say that? I'm going to sweep through the whole land of Egypt, and every house, the eldest son will die. Back when I was um, younger and less wise, um, <laughs> I did an all-age service at a church I was at, and I was very enthusiastic that the children would understand the seriousness of this point. So I said, this big church, uh, all-age service, I said, right, if you're an eldest son, could you please stand up? I, I should have seen the danger, right? I should have seen it was a mistake. I got all the eldest sons to stand up, and I said, you would all be dead. And then there was a number of complaints. <laughs> but we offended by it. But it's true. I would do it again. Because it's true. And here's the deal, right? We like to pretend that sin doesn't really matter. We like to pretend that God doesn't really do that sort of thing. But he does. Not because he's mean and nasty, but because sin stinks and it's an offense to God. And God's response is that he will bring death. Sin always brings death. And we fall into the trap of thinking, well, I'm not a bad person. If you think that, and it may be you're not that bad. But that's because we're mistaking sins and sin. We're getting those two things confused. Jesus came, according to John 21, 29, to take away the sin of the world, not the sins of the world. There's a difference between the two. Sins is the stuff I do on the outside. Sin is the problem in my heart. You see the difference? If I were to inject all of us, to, I'm not going to, 
I've learned my lesson. If I was to inject all of us today with an infectious disease that, that attacked our hearts, we may have different symptoms. Some of us may react differently to it. And you may even sit there and look at others and go, well, I'm not as bad as them. They seem to be really in a mess, but I seem to be okay. No, you're confusing the symptoms and the, prob- and the disease. Even though your symptoms aren't as bad, your heart is still poisoned. And here is the deal. According to the Bible, it is not just that we do naughty things. It's that we have a rotten heart. I have a heart that has this attitude inside it. I'm going to do things my way. And I choose to live my way and I become an enemy of God. And so God brings death because of sin. And so it was in Egypt that God said all of his enemies, there would be death in every house. You say, that's not very nice. But here's the thing. When God brings judgment, he also brings rescue. And so he said, here is what you can do to be safe when judgment comes. You take a lamb, you bring it into your home, and the lamb lives with you, and then on Passover night, you kill the lamb. And you put its blood on the door frames, and it's crystal clear that the lamb dies instead of the oldest son. The oldest son should die, but the lamb dies instead. A death happens, but it's not the son, it's the lamb. And for the rest of his life, the eldest son says, that lamb, Fluffy, was my hero. Because he died in my place. That's how lambs work in the Bible. And now here comes John the Baptist and he looks at Jesus and he says, look, there's the lamb. And as we go through the pages of John's gospel, we're going to see that John the the gospel writer has an obsession with Passover. You keep coming up against it. You get it in chapter 2, you say, it's Passover time. And what happens at Passover time? We're told that Jesus is going to die. His body is the temple that's going to be destroyed. In chapter 6, it's Passover time again. And in chapter 6, we discover Jesus is the bread who's going to give his life for the life of the world. And then in chapter 19, you discover it's Passover time. And Jesus dies on the cross. He's the lamb. The lamb who dies. And he dies to sort out to deal with, to take away, not my sins, but my sin. Not just the symptoms, but the root. He dies to take away the offense that makes me an enemy of God so that I can be saved. We have all sorts of problems in our life, but sin is your biggest problem, it's my biggest problem, and it's why Jesus came. Now, right, okay, here's the two testimonies of John. Jesus is the the Lord, and he's the Lamb. Now, if you're still with me, and we're nearly there, there it is. There is the glory of God. Do you see it? The Lord who is the Lamb. 
the Word who became flesh. God who became a man so he could die. How does God reveal his glory to the world? By becoming a man and dying on a cross to take away sin. That's what John's gospel is all about. The glory of God revealed in the death of Jesus on the cross. You glimpse his glory when you see this paradox. The Lord is the Lamb. That's the great secret that John's gospel reveals. And he dies to take away the sin of the world. And that means that Jesus is not some innocent third party. He's not some random bystander who gets killed by God for random. He is God himself come to be the Lamb. Can you contemplate anything more spectacular, anything more daring, that the God of the universe would become a lamb and die so that your sin could be taken away? Oh, we've completely run out of time. Maybe we'll have a look at 32 to 31 next time. We'll pick it up next time. But for today, I I want us to leave today saying, Jesus, show me your glory. Show me that you're the Lord It's not about me. I'm not the Messiah. You are. And your glory is infinite. And your worth is great. And I want to be captivated by that glory. And show me that you're the Lamb. The Lamb who came to give your life for mine. The Lamb who came so that I might go free. Because actually, if we were going to do that all-age service again, it wouldn't just be the eldest sons who'd need to stand up. I need to say, everybody stand up. All of us deserve to die. And Jesus died in your place. He is the substitute. And this afternoon, that's how you can know him. So if you know that's true, let's celebrate it. Let's live for it. Let's stop obsessing about ourselves and live for his glory. And if you don't know that's true yet, hear the testimony. Believe this testimony. Trust this lamb. Let him be your lamb who takes away your sin so that you can know God.